Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views, the place for pets. And their people who love them. Here is your host, practicing veterinarian, veterinary news network reporter, and host of the popular YouTube show, The Web DVM, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I'm your host, veterinarian Roger Welton, coming to you live from the Florida Space Coast. Tonight's topic is a very important one. We're talking about preventing one of the, actually the number one cause of death in cats, the number two cause of death in dogs, kidney failure. And uh, very important tips I want to give you with regard to the, that particular disease because it is very serious, it's very common, and in many cases it's quite preventable. So please stay tuned in because I have some good information for you. We have one email question this evening, a lady named Courtney from Baltimore, Maryland. I'll be going over that in just a moment. Just a reminder to everybody that you can email questions, comments, concerns that you may have to be aired live on the air by me at comments at webdvm.net, comments at webdvm.net. This is also a live call-in show, though we don't get calls too often. Every now and again we do. The number is toll-free, 1-877-878-1435, 1-877-878-1435. Please feel free to call in at any time throughout this broadcast if you're listening live. We do enjoy getting live callers. Again, we don't get them too often, but when we do, it's quite enjoyable. So before we get into kidney failure this evening, let's uh, first go over our email question. Again, Courtney from Baltimore, Maryland. This is what she wrote. My veterinarian pushes heartworm prevention medicine year-round for my English Cocker Spaniel, but where I live, we really only see mosquitoes from May through October. My understanding is that dogs can only get heartworm from mosquito bites. I feel like I'm giving my dog drugs he does not need, treating him year-round, and my vet does a heartworm blood test every year anyway. What is your opinion on this? Thanks so much. Courtney raises a very important and valid point here. So, the mosquito vector is, or let's, let's say the mosquito organism is the vector for the transmission of heartworm disease. The infective larvae that transmits and actually is able to infect from one dog to another is carried by the mosquito. It is a teeny tiny microscopic larvae. It's called microfilaria, and it is picked up from one dog by a mosquito when it feeds. It goes through a certain stage of maturation within the gut of the mosquito. Mosquito then feeds on another dog and infects that dog. So Courtney raises a very valid point. In the absence of mosquitoes, we're not really that concerned about heartworm disease. And and it really is true. So when I first came out of practice, or when I, I'm sorry, when I first came into general practice when I graduated veterinary school, I worked in Long Island, New York. And of course, I was right by Long Island Sound on the North Shore. And to be sure, you know, May through October, there was mosquitoes galore because you know, you don't only have the sound, which is not quite, doesn't quite have the salinity of the ocean. It has sort of a brackish kind of content, um, you know, a little less salin- salinity. And also with the high and low tides, it left tidal pools, 
which if there was a good rain or good rains, you know, throughout the summer, which there typically are, it would leave very low salinity puddles, which mosquitoes breed in. And in, in many cases along the shore, there's like little coves. And so mosquitoes were nasty uh, in the summer, May through October on the North Shore of Long Island. And even as we were heading in towards November, you know, every now and then you'd have an unseasonably warm day, November, early December, it would hit the 50s and actually you'd see a mosquito bloom. And so I'm imagining the kind of environment climate wise is fairly similar in Baltimore, Maryland. Now I know Baltimore, Maryland's got the, and I don't, you know, I don't know the exact, you know, geographics. Of, of Baltimore, Maryland. So forgive me, everybody. But I do believe Chesapeake Bay is near there. There is the the whole Baltimore waterfront, which I believe is a bay. Bays are generally brackish. They're going to be mosquito havens. Um, probably a bit warmer in, in Baltimore than it was in North Shore Long Island. So I would say those mosquito pockets could potentially happen even midwinter. You know, you can get those days in the 50s, 60s sometimes, those freak days, a few of them in a row, it doesn't take much, suddenly mosquitoes are going crazy. That stated, though, the risk is probably still overall low in that area and and, and most temperate-type climates. Um, I would say below that Mason-Dixon line, you're increasingly playing with fire, not doing year-round heartworm prevention, but Baltimore kind of one of those areas where you might be able to get away with doing prevention during the mosquito-prone months. Now, I don't think your your vet's being unreasonable. I don't think that he is giving you bad advice. I think two things. Number one, there is no such thing as zero risk for a heartworm disease in a heartworm-prone area just because it's winter. And I explained why already. You know, unseasonably warm weather quick mosquito bloom. And again, in Long Island, I remember like around Thanksgiving time, we'd, we'd have an unseasonably warm string of days. And I used to see like clouds of mosquitoes going by, like they'd just be suddenly sprouted. Um, you know, still, the risk is still much lower than in the summer. But, you know, when we look at the amount of actual medication, which is in, in the class of drugs called ivermectins or avermectins, the the risk of taking these is uh, it's nominal the the amount of avermectin you know whatever product you're using there's going to be a different kind of avermectin but from, from by and large you're talking about needing a tiny teeny tiny amount of uh, medication to kill the microfilaria microfilaria they are microscopic larvae that are very susceptible to kill by this uh, class of anti-parasite medication. So the dose is really low. There's really virtually no downside. We really don't see adverse reaction to it. So, you know, from the, from your vet's point of view, I can certainly understand saying, hey, do it year-round because, number one, there is some risk, even albeit lower, uh, for heartworm disease. But number two, a lot of most of our modern-day heartworm preventives are also preventing for intestinal parasitism. And when intestinal parasitism really doesn't have a season, that can happen at any time. Um, you know, so so you're getting that benefit as well. So for me, you know, I look at my own dogs 
I'd probably do it. If I was in Maryland, I'd probably do it. I'd probably do year-round prevention because why not? I don't see a downside. So on one hand, Courtney, you have a valid point. On the other hand, you know, the statement you made that you feel like you're giving your dog drugs for, you know, something he doesn't really need, uh, I wouldn't go that far, you know, because what you're giving is really innocuous. The the dose is so nominal, I, I, I wouldn't be concerned about it. But but if I was your veterinarian, I would say, look, the risk is lower. Is it without risk? No. But if if you feel better not doing it, I'm going to respect your decision. So I'd say I'd leave that to your discretion and you do what you like. My suggestion would be to just do it because there's no downside. Um, so take that for what it is. I happen to be in Florida, the heartworm capital of the United States. So, of course, we're going to do heart, not, not only yearly screening, we're going to do uh, monthly heartworm. I'm, I'm not a week goes by that I'm not treating a case of heartworm disease. And by the way, once you have adult heartworms in the system, it, you can't simply give this innocuous medication to kill adult heartworms. That's a whole other ball of wax, right? You're, that, that is a, you're using a toxic compound uh, called malarsamine. And a lot of people say, well, why would I treat my dog if you're using something so toxic? Well, the alternative is right-sided heart failure because the heartworms will colonize the right ventricle of the heart, destroy the heart, and also destroy the pulmonary artery and, and lungs. So there's really no other option but to treat. But um, we don't want it to get to that point. Give them a preventive, really simple, for my Florida listeners. So, Courtney, thank you for writing in. And to remind everybody else that's listening right now, comments at web-dvm.net. Email me anytime. I'm happy to answer any questions you have or just take your comments on anything I might be discussing on the show. So let's talk about kidney failure, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> kidney failure. So what is kidney failure? Kidney failure is a gradual or acute. So we can say chronic would be gradual, acute would be sudden onset, loss of kidney function. Now in the chronic part of it, it can be very gradual. Um, it could take months to years, and that could be just a gradual degeneration of functional kidney tissue, which once we reach 75% of degradation of or degeneration of kidney tissue, then kidney failure ensues. And kidney failure means that two things happen. The kidneys fail to retain their ability to eliminate metabolic toxins. So when I say metabolic toxins, I'm referring to toxins that build up every day, every second you live, every second the dog lives, every second the cat lives, as a result of everyday metabolism. So uh, the main toxin we're talking about now, there's others, but the main two that we look at in the blood work are BUN, blood urea nitrogen, and the other one is creatinine, which is a muscle metabolism metabolite. Creatinine is a really nice, very consistent, reliable parameter that we look at as far as kidney function is concerned. BUN, blood urine nitrogen, is actually a parameter, but also a very toxic metabolite. It is an analog of ammonia. And you're probably wondering, why is ammonia building up in the body every day? Well, when the body ingests protein by, through, through, through the diet, and this goes for cats, dogs, and humans, that protein cannot be absorbed in its macro form, in the big, you know, giant molecules that these, these 
proteins are from a biochemical perspective, they cannot be absorbed in their native state. So what has to happen is travel to the stomach, the stomach uh, through contractions and a very severe gastric uh, acid pH degradates these proteins into much smaller chains. These smaller chains now are absorbable and they get absorbed through the course of propagating through the small intestine. So the end result of that is the body absorbs the protein and then repackages the protein and reassembles it into areas where the body needs it. Enzymes, which are very large proteins. You know, we're all familiar with muscle tissue. Um, all the tissues of the body really are protein. When you look at the liver, pancreas, you know, name your tissue skin, it's comprised of protein. So we rebuild tissues with the proteins that we eat. Now, there is a payback to that. So protein, good, byproduct of that metabolism, bad. That byproduct is ammonia, and that's where our ammonia analog comes in. So luckily, we and canines and felines have livers, and livers take that ammonia and turn it into a less toxic metabolite called BUN or blood urea nitrogen, and that urea nitrogen goes to the kidneys and the kidneys urinate it out. And that is why urine is called urine because the primary component of urine is water and urea, blood, urea, nitrogen, and urea when I say that honestly. When, when we see urea in the bloodstream, it's a pretty good indication the kidneys aren't getting rid of it fast enough. And so we probably, there's a good chance we might have failure. Now, the other thing the kidneys lack their ability to do in kidney failure is they don't concentrate the urine well. So think about when you don't really drink much water and you've been sweating a lot, what happens? Your pee is really yellow because what your what your kidneys are doing is saying, wow, Roger hasn't taken in much water today and he's sweating quite a bit. We better retain more water and when we expel we're going to expel more solids and that's going to look like very yellow pee. In other cases where I'm drinking a lot of water or drinking a lot of beer, if it's an NFL Sunday, something like that, what's going to happen is that water, that, that urine is going to be very diluted because the body's saying, kidneys are saying, Roger's drinking an awful lot of fluids right now. We need to expel more water than solids in our urine and so that's going to ensue. Well, it's a very important mechanism because if the body can't concentrate the urine, then it can't retain its hydration during times of less water intake. So what we find with kidney failure is they can't concentrate urine because they've let, the kidneys have lost the ability to do that function. But secondly, the patients tend to drink a lot of water because everything they drink kind of goes right through them because the body can't retain it. Very serious disease. And again, there's chronic kidney failure and then there is acute kidney failure. Either one is bad. Um, now, in the case of chronic kidney failure, you know there are mechanisms at work that could be very, very much genetic in origin, even acute kidney failure to a certain degree. You know, and, and genetics, there's not a lot we can do about. But what we can do is create lifestyle and strategies, and also early screening and detection to do the best with the things that we can control. We can't control genetics. We have what we have. Our pets, once we decide to adopt them, purchase them, whatever it is we do, 
they're going to come with a certain genetic code and that's going to come with a certain predisposition to disease and among that predisposition could be kidney failure but there's things we can do to lessen the onset lessen the severity and increase their longevity so let's let's start from the top the one of the most important things we can do to prevent kidney failure good dental health i know it may sound silly but there's a recent study uh, actually a number of studies and if you put them all together uh Listen to this. Bacterial colonization of the outer surface of the teeth and subsequent gum infection, conditions known as periodontal disease and gingivitis, respectively, have a direct link in contributing to kidney failure in dogs and cats. It is believed that the chronic inflammation and subsequent metabolic stress it causes leads to degenerative changes in the kidneys. This is remarkable. Listen to this. Studies have indicated that dogs and cats with mid-level to severe periodontal disease and gingivitis that is left unaddressed have a 49% higher incidence of kidney failure than pets that have well-maintained dental health. 49%, folks. That is remarkable, right? And that's not something I pulled out of my hat there. I read that directly from the renal, veterinary renal health website. You know, this is, this, is, this is profound. You know, just having good teeth and keeping the teeth and gums healthy. And I wonder, you know, I don't, I'm not a human medical expert, but I wonder if there's the same correlation in people, but just keeping the teeth healthy reduces the incidence by 49%. That is crazy. So when we're talking about good dental health, and you know, I've harped on this time and again, and I'm going to continue harping on it till my last dying breath, and I say that all the time, dental wellness is so important. And here's another reason why it is so important. So when your vet says, there's some tartar here, we got some gingivitis, really should do a dental cleaning. Take it seriously. Have it done because it could be the difference between development of kidney failure at some point or not or developing kidney failure sooner than later. Okay, so take that seriously. Here's a big one I want to bring up because I'm really concerned about these diets, these new this new dietary fad that we got to feed dogs like we do wolves. And we have to just destroy them with protein. Just protein, protein, protein. Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. Did I say wrong? Okay. I mean wrong. It's, it's, it's terrible, some of the protein contents of these diets we're seeing. I'm not going to name names. I don't have deep enough pockets to withstand a lawsuit. But I will tell you it's a lot of those quote-unquote holistic diets out there. It's a lot of the um, all quote-unquote all-natural diets out there preservative-free, grain-free, all that stuff. Not saying that grain-free diets and all-natural diets and preservative-free and all that is they're bad diets. I'm just saying that a lot of them are are taking that all-natural thing too far because dogs are not wolves. And again, this is another point I brought up many times in my broadcast. Dogs are not wolves. They are a much different species than what wolves were. Dogs metabolically are a lot more like us than they are like wolves realistically they're somewhere in between but we can't feed them like wolves so some of these diets we're talking 34 percent protein good lord well what did i just tell you about protein and how it's processed it's got to be broken down it's got to be absorbed and then repackaged and the end byproduct of that metabolically is ammonia ammonia is converted by the liver into a less harmful but still potentially harmful metabolite urea urea goes to the kidneys gets urinated out so if you're slamming your dog with more protein than he needs 
guess what? You're going to have a lot more protonaceous waste. Guess what? You're going to have a lot more ammonia. Guess what? You're going to have a lot more urea. What are you doing? You're taxing liver and kidneys way more than you should be. So it's going to, over time, cause degenerative changes in these organs that are overstressed over several months to years that you're feeding them these diets. So let me give you a good guideline for crude protein. You want to feed all natural? Great. You want to go grain-free? No problem. To, you know, be as holistic and, you know, whatever it is you want to do, no problem. But let's, let me give you some guidelines. Crude protein should never exceed more than 24% in your average dog. And let's say you have a high-performance dog. And I'm not saying a dog that goes jogging with his owner once a day. I'm talking about, like, a field, a field champion type dog, an agility dog, a sled dog, um, a dog that um, may, may hunt frequently and is used for that purpose constantly. Things like that. I'm talking constant vigorous activity. 27% we can go up to. But do not exceed that even in these dogs, Okay. Good guideline to go by. Again, pick your all-natural, holistic, preservative-free, what-have-you diet of your choice. Wonderful. But just make sure we're not slamming with protein. Very important you look at that crude protein content. Different with cats. Kitties are a little different because cats are, they really are more the pure carnivore. They can really make anything from protein. They process the protein better. They are better equipped to handle those levels of protein. And so I'm not really concerned in that regard with cats. Now, once they are showing signs of kidney disease, that's a different story. We need to limit that protein. But um, up until that point, there's really no evidence that shows that you're going to reduce the incidence of kidney failure in cats by feeding a more omnivorous diet. That stated, I think cats, by and large, do well with you know some fiber, uh, some 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 soluble and insoluble fiber. Um, I think their GIs are better. I do I do think that we have to be careful of carbohydrates in cats. But it's a whole other broadcast. Let's continue with kidney failure. Antifreeze, ladies and gentlemen. If you see an antifreeze spill, or you're you you spilled it, or it's leaking from your car, you see a spill, clean it up immediately. Don't let that linger. You see that green stuff. Clean it up immediately. Antifreeze has a one of its active ingredients in antifreeze is ethylene glycol. Ethylene glycol is horrifically toxic to canine and feline kidneys. And here's the problem: they don't start licking it up because they let they're like, "Ooh, look at that lovely, pretty green color." They lick it up because it smells great, it tastes great, it's very sweet tasting. Never tasted it myself, but I've treated enough cases of feline both canine and feline ethylene glycol toxicity to know that they love it. So folks, be really, really vigilant about looking for antifreeze spills, clean them up. Don't let them linger because even if you're vigilant enough with your dog that, you know, you know your dog's not going to get near that because you leash him and he's not near what, you know, what have you, any stray cat could come by, any neighborhood cat can come by and drink it up. And, um, you know, not a good thing. It doesn't take much to cause severe toxicity. So <clears throat> the the other thing I want to talk about is blood pressure. So blood pressure is an interesting thing. 
hypertension I'm speaking of specifically, high blood pressure. So high blood pressure is something we see a lot of in cats, and we see a fair amount of it in dogs. And the troubling thing about blood, high blood pressure is it can be a primary problem in and of itself, a problem within the canine or feline's cardiovascular system, just like with us. They have the tendency to have high blood pressure. High blood pressure can lead to kidney failure because of the whole filtration that happens at the level of the kidney and also blood pressure regulation that the body is trying to enact at the level of the kidney. Believe it or not, blood pressure regulation happens very much, very much at the level of the kidney through a, a system called the uh, the renin-angiotensin system. And that's something that um, if the, you have a chronically hypertensive patient, it doesn't only do damage to the little filtration units in the, in the kidney called the nephrons, but it also stresses the kidneys because it is constantly having to um, stress the renin-angiotensin system. So high blood pressure can lead to kidney failure. Here's the interesting thing, though. Kidney failure can lead to high blood pressure. Um, and again, it goes down to that renin-angiotensin system. If it's not working optimally, what's going to happen is the body's going to retain certain electrolytes, sodium. It's going to um, not work properly. And as a result, the blood pressure is not regulated, commonly leads to hypertension. So lots of times, one of the first things we see before the patient's clinical, before they're losing weight, before they're sick, is high blood pressure. And so this is a big one, ladies and gentlemen, because not every vet is doing this. In my veterinary practice, when your pet comes in for a yearly, dog or cat, at the age of seven years or older, and it's not just a yearly, any visit, your dog comes in for vomiting, your cat comes in for blood in the urine, name your visit, whether it's a yearly, a sick visit, what have you, we are taking blood pressures on every patient seven years or older because the blood pressure can tell us Number one, is there primary hypertension and cardiac disease that can down the road lead to not only the problems associated with blood pressure, primarily like blood clots and cardiomyopathies and things like that, but also kidney failure? Or is this an early harbinger of early stage kidney failure? In which case we can step in through early screening by taking blood pressures. One way or the other, taking blood pressures is very, very, very important. Because if there is hypertension, we deal with it. We reduce cardiac stress, but we also reduce the possibility for kidney failure. If we find the high blood pressure is from kidney failure, well, guess what? We can start that patient on a kidney-friendly diet. We can restrict sodium. We can treat with high blood pressure, with blood pressure medication, and we can slow the onset of that kidney failure, and we can also slow the progression. So it's a win-win, folks, taking blood pressures. And I like to use a device called a PET map. Now, back in the day, the only real accurate way to do it, blood pressures, was with a, this ultrasound device called a Doppler. And it's just annoying, and the patient so much as sneezes, it throws it off, and it was just not accurate, and it was a pain. And so we didn't do it as a general part of our examinations. But now we have this device called a PET map, on cats, you could put it right on their tail and take the blood pressure from the tail. Most dogs, you can put the cuff right on their arm and take it from there. It takes, you know, less than two minutes. We get a blood pressure reading. And so when I come into the exam room, I have 
you know, not only temperature, uh, respirations, and heart rate from the technician, I also have a blood pressure. So right off the bat, I have a lot of information that I know before I even put my hands on the patient in terms of their general health. And, and not a lot of vets are doing this, and it's a little troubling to me because it should be being done. So if your vet's not taking standard blood pressures on pets seven years or older, as oh, take issue with that veterinarian and tell them what I said. And they might say, well, you know what? We're only going to go there when we suspect there might be problems because it's really difficult to take blood pressures and to do it standard is just a lot of, you know, hassle and blah, blah, blah. Well, they might be using the older Doppler technology, but the pet map, P-E-T-M-A-P, the pet map has made it so so easy um, that we're doing it on every patient. We don't even charge for it. Part of the physical examination. So those are your tips for, oh, and the last thing, for a dog, vaccinate them for leptospirosis. Leptospirosis is an infectious bacterial disease that causes acute kidney failure. 50% of patients, once showing clinical signs, even with treatment, will die. Okay? So when your vet recommends leptospirosis, especially if you live in an area where there's fresh standing water, whether in the form of puddles, lakes, ponds, anything, you want to vaccinate for lepto. The other thing, too, is if there's a lot of squirrels around. Um, Squirrels are the biggest carrier for leptospirosis, and they eliminate it in their urine, they're the biggest contaminator of the environment for leptospirosis. Cats can get lepto, but generally um, we don't see it as much. Uh, dogs, vaccinate for it, very serious. Vaccinate your dog for leptospirosis. That's kidney failure in a nutshell, folks. I got eight seconds left. I got to bugger out here. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you next week. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.